Welcome to the Zero Hour Podcast, sponsored by Beecher Madden, the podcast that gives you the insights, techniques, and tools into top guests from the cybersecurity, governance, forensic, and data world. Welcome to the latest episode of the Zero Hour Podcast and your host today is Carla Reffold. Today we are joined by Kitty Parry. Kitty is a serial entrepreneur with deep experience in the regulatory technology and finance. In 2014, Kitty was recognized as the young global leader by the World Economic Forum for Entrepreneurial Success. She is now founder and CEO of DeepView, an enterprise cybersecurity software solution using artificial intelligence to alert photo and video data leaks. The privacy forward archiving solution allows regulated employees to safely and compliantly use encrypted chat channels. Hope you enjoy. Beach Madden are recruiters for cybersecurity and corporate governance professionals. Leveraging our long-held relationships, industry knowledge, and data-driven approach, we help companies and candidates make better hiring decisions. Uh, well, Kitty, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I'd love to learn a little bit more about you. So can you tell us you know, where you were born, where you grew up, that sort of thing? Absolutely. So I was born uh, in a place called Swindon, uh, which is uh, slightly west of Reading in south of England and grew up in Berkshire, lived there. Um, My parents are still there. Very lucky. Um, And that was actually the beginning of my first business. So um, I happened to be dyslexic, which meant that at times I needed a kind of creative outlet for my uh, the way my mind thought that wasn't always understood by teachers. <laughs> and so the best escape that I man- managed to find was actually setting up a business. So, yes, that home in Berkshire was, was the foundation of the first business, Templars Weddings. Wow. We, do you know, we hear that a lot from founders, that they were dyslexic and actually, you know, incredibly intelligent, just, you know, struggled with traditional education is is that your experience yeah I think um the way a dyslexic mind works is you can't follow the logical a b c d e f g uh process that you're taught at school because if you do you end up being behind all the time so if the answer is z you just figure out how to get to z in a very different way so that you can kind of get there in a similar at a similar speed than your classmates So I don't think um, the education system struggles with with dyslexic individuals, not because the education system is wrong. The education is built for the majority, which I completely understand. Um, And also it's it's difficult for teachers because dyslexic dyslexic children are often answering the question in the way that teachers haven't even thought of an answer. So you're continually feeling like you're throwing your teachers when you're dyslexic, which is weirdly um disappointing because all you want to do is kind of try and get at the right answer so um i was lucky to have some external support but i for sure look back on my school days and there were times when it was pretty tough and um my parents certainly questioned where i might go and how that might work out 
Um, but the benefit of all of this is you figure out your own path and you realize that it's your journey to lead from a very early age. So I will always consider it a gift. And anyone with dyslexia, I will always tell them that they have been given one of one of the one of the greatest challenges in their early life, but something that will serve them in later life beautifully. But you continued in education. Is, is that right? You got a degree? Yes, absolutely. Um, got a degree, went through to do a degree in psychology, a master of science. Um, and yeah, was very lucky and worked hard and got a first in my dissertation, a 2-1 at the degree level. So I didn't, um, I, I had to work hard, but it paid off. And you can kind of teach yourself out of some of the dyslexic traits. And then actually was fortunate enough to do a two-week course at Harvard last year with the World Economic Forum, um, which was an incredible, um, it was a Harvard Ken Kennedy School, an incredible opportunity. Keeping up with the pace of that type of learning was 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 fascinating but, and a challenge, but really good fun and wonderful to see how different mindsets approached the way of learning there. I imagine that's one of the great benefits, sort of all the people you get to meet on a course like that. Yes. And thank you to the WEF because it was all Young Global Leaders. And I think the, the best thing about the Young Global Leader Network group is just the wonderful attitudes and positivity with all the individuals that are Young Global Leaders and the people that surround you. It really is. It's like a kind of force of nature that comes into your life. Um, it really is something that the WEF have got very right. <laughs> So just before we move on to security, how did you get involved with them? Um, so I think I had, so Templar's Weddings I set up when I was 16. So that was kind of in the background while I was at school, while I was at university, which you can imagine was a bit of a challenge, but worked. Um, <laughs> remained small, but it, and it's still going. It's a lovely little business. Um, but then... I remember um, I set up, I then went to, I worked for WPP and was then asked to set up a PR company. And two years in, a friend came to stay. And I remember, I think they came to stay. We had a dinner, we had, I, I organized a dinner in London and then drove back and uh, took the friend down to the country so they could see the wedding business. And they just turned around and they were like, you are, you're running two companies and you're trying to do this. And you know, we just started talking and he happened to be a young global leader and he just said, you know, the way um, I love the way you're trying to give back with these businesses and so on. And so he very kindly nominated me to be a young global leader. At the time, I wasn't quite sure what it meant or really the opportunity it was. Um, and that, But that's how the process works. People nominate you and you kind of just sit back and hope. Um, and now I believe they interview people, but at the time they didn't interview people. Uh, and it takes, I believe, about nine months. And then then you're sent a letter to say, congratulations, you are a young labor leader. And so that was that was how I got into it. So fortunate. Uh, and then from there on, um, obviously, attending Davos and so on, and just generally kind of being in the groups and the global um, friendship, I'd say, <laughs> that is the group of the YGLs. Amazing. So do you recall the first time you heard about security? Um, it's a really good question. And it's, um, no, I don't, if I'm going to be 
very honest with you. <laughs> I think um, being so the public relations firm that I built Templars uh, was focused on financial services. And one of the problems and challenges that banks, hedge funds, asset managers continually were facing was knowing that many of their staff were communicating on social media. I mean, it was very early in those days. This was 2006. Um, but not quite understanding how to manage the risk around it. And of course, how to manage the compliance law around it. Because what's so difficult is um, the regulation doesn't always fit exactly to social media, even though it's very clear. So, for example, you've got MIFID law stating that uh, client communications need to be recorded or the data record keeping requirement from the SEC or, or and the 1718 from FINRA in the US, as well as data security. So the SEC has in their 10K that if there's any cyber risk, a firm must report it. And I think beginning to hear about that, it wasn't necessarily the security risk that was coming to the fore, but more of the awareness that we were embarking on a very new way of communicating and an entire industry slash global industries. I mean, many applies to pharmaceutical industry, applies to insurance and so on. Um, we're going to be facing with this facing this huge challenge and also how could we work it so that we could actually proactively work with the regulators ahead of the massive data leaks that were going to be likely to occurring so by in, by being interested in the compliance and the regulation around it the the security became very interesting in it so actually hence why our the business was or the our parent company is called social media compliance so that was the start of it um, and then from there on, we organised a group uh, in the House of Lords with the FCA, the UK regulator, to begin to form a solution. And that um, evolved significantly into us understanding exactly what was needed and the platform that we have in DeepView today. Wow. So it sounds like, you know, you really spotted the problem without necessarily knowing what the solution was in the early days. Uh, for sure. I think most businesses uh, understand a problem first and then you and then you make the solution, because if you don't understand the problem as such, I think it becomes very difficult to even find a solution unless um, unless you've got unbelievable backing of, of huge amounts, because if you, if you want to find, I wanted to build a business that was revenue generating from day one. And so we were selling a solution from day one. And that was really the case with this business. Uh, we were selling early opportunities and uh, for large global institutions to use our technology to support these issues from the very, very early days. And then using that intelligence to, um, inform further R&D and development in the products. And how did you go about developing the tech for the business? Um, so at the time, uh, I was still running the PR company and then we, we had this event in the House of Lords. And as we were doing this, uh, we were was bringing, working with several attorneys and a couple of incredible tech guys in the U UK 
and we were continuing and girls and we were um continually stumbling across this data leakage particularly on personal social media and the personal social media was just screaming out as an area that needed management and so we then did a super heavy recruitment drive into um looking at somebody we were looking it was quite a high bar somebody who understood financial regulation understood how banks and financial services companies worked understood privacy law so gdpr which was just coming to the fore and also was a expert in architecture as well as being a coder as well as being a leader and that brought us to our to our cto that we have today who really has done a superb job of pulling together the platform as it stands and for those people who don't know um you know deepview does some really quite interesting things with images in particular can you tell us a little bit about that yeah i'd love to um we've also just got the patent for it in the us which is super exciting so what we do is um Actually, or the problem, because it's 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 easier to understand the solution if the problem's well identified. So the problem is, um, we see intelligent people uh, taking photos, putting them on Instagram or LinkedIn, primarily because they're proud of their company they work for, or they are um, keen to share what they're doing with their friends. And in these photos and videos, there might be a whiteboard or a post-it note with password on it, or their computer screen which is great fodder for social engineers and hackers looking to pose as, say, the IT person in the company. And then um, what happens is the hacker poses the IT person, calls up the individual or emails the individual and says, I can see a problem. Your Word version looks like it's out of date. I'll send you an email, click on the link, and I'll update the system for you. Now, obviously, the, the, the process I've just explained is one single way a social engineer gets into an organization. The way they do that, as we all know, changes by the day because they invest so much time into this. And so what we've done is we've built, um, an, we've built an algorithm, several algorithms, that recognize the concept or any of a component within a photo or video that could be a data leak. And so we can alert the organization when that might be sent out and what's kind of clever about it is it's a little bit like the um, sheriff or the policeman driving down the street it doesn't care what else is on your social media it's not going to invade your privacy because you're putting x y and z there it only picks up when there is a photo or video posted or text that could be a data risk to your business to the business you work for. So like the sheriff cop, it's only going to pick you up if you're causing a nightmare. So it only picks up, say, the super drunk guy falling into the street and causing car crashes everywhere. Not going to be cause, not going to be arresting everyone else that's just walking down the street and doing their own day-to-day -day work. So that's one way that we help companies with that particular algorithm. That must be a big challenge you get. You know, I don't want people to see my personal stuff. You know, it's not work related. Um, and, and there must be a bit of a, a trust loop there. So how are you getting companies to take that leap with you? Absolutely. And actually, um, as a business, we say we're privacy focused. And what we mean by that is we we wholeheartedly support people's privacy. We our technology cannot even capture 
all the private stuff. It's not even built to capture. Even when I talk about the recording that we do for WhatsApp and WeChat, the only reason it works on personal devices is we only capture the work information. And so what, um, what I do with some companies is talk to them and say, look, as a director of this business, I know that we have to be highly careful because under all the regulation, we do not want to be capturing anything that's personal. We're only capturing the stuff that risks your business. But most of all, what we're seeing is actually a um, high awareness of the personal risk le leaking data could could cause. So actually this tool, we've now got a way of putting it on a phone and it just alerting the individual to the data risk photos. So the company won't even know and the individual has it as, a, as a, an alert system themselves. And by using that, individuals are kind of seeing it as an HR benefit. They're actually really grateful that, that it's being alerted to them because often in our lives we're so busy and and sort of we want to do our social media posts we want to move on and you know um that we that people don't have the time to necessarily process what they're going to be posting and so we are on their side and also the final kind of component to that is if you can manage the data leaks properly then the regulators aren't going to have to command huge amounts of devices right and so that's really the way um, we're looking at this is kind of proactively manage the risk. And then you've got a way of managing it within the, the people's lives and in a way that works for them. But if you're doing it reactively, it could become highly intrusive into people's lives. Well, I think they all sound quite compelling. Um, and I was amazed at how quickly this goes into a company, how quickly it turns on. Yeah, so... There's two products. We've got ImageGuard, which is manages the public data leaks. Um, uh, so that needs nothing apart from we literally just follow the addresses of the external companies. We've got another solution that we're just rolling out in beta version, which actually sits on the personal phones and alerts the employee individually. So that can be easily downloaded. And then ChatGuard, which... Um, literally will send an email to the individual. So say they want to use WhatsApp for work on their personal device or on their corporate device, we'll send them an email, they can click on the link, select which of the chats are work related, and it's done. So total 120 seconds for chat guard. And so yeah, so it's critical that all of these solutions work and need no interference from IT. So it is uh, very easy to set up at home. And there is no need for any kind of um, IT support as such to install it. And I imagine that's another big, uh, big benefit to people, you know, especially over the last few months where, um, you know, I imagine lots of people working at home are a little bit fed up of sort of all the technology they've had to put in place and all the security um, defences they've had to put up to enable them to work from home. Yeah, absolutely. I, absolutely. And I think um, one thing we're hearing a great deal of is that uh, many of the compliance and security guys we're speaking to are saying, you know, we can see our staff moving on to different chat channels. They're kind of chatting on Microsoft Teams. They're chatting on um, email and saying, let's move this to X. And so it's really important that those other channels are being carefully managed because otherwise 
we're going to see a huge lag and problem of um, management and security and also compliance regulation. So, yes, as you say, it's critical. It's easy to upload. It meets all the privacy requirements. And then finally, um, is is clear for people to um, use on their computers and devices. Well, I'd love to get your take a bit more on that because we've seen so many channels for business uh, communications, like you've just talked about. You know, Slack over the last few years and in the last few months, you know, the popularity of Zoom and even things, you know, apps like House Party, which. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are colleagues on there as well to, you know, try and keep in touch with their teams. So what have you seen from, from that perspective over the past few months? Yeah, well, so we've kind of been gathering, we've got our like COVID trends, as we've been calling them. And really, these are like the trends that we're beginning to see uh, come out as people are working from home. And they are primarily... I mean, as, as we all see, there's like this massive amount of data leakage um, that is that is now happening as 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 people are working from home. Um, but I think the cyber cyber hacks have increased up to five times, which um, you're probably highly aware of. You've probably seen all of that. Um, I think the the prime example is obviously the World Health Organization had five times more hacks. I mean, that's related to obviously the COVID trend and the relationship with um, the World Health Organization with that. However, there's also been a di- there's also been reports of significant data breaches and therefore cyber attacks occurring outside the World Health Organization. Um, Secondly, seeing photos being posted, as as we saw from uh, our prime minister in the UK, leaking Zoom details of a meeting. And it's these kinds of photos that it's so easy to accidentally leak um, that really do need to be managed. Uh, we're also seeing WhatsApps. Obviously, WhatsApp was up 40% within the first several weeks of the work from home, and we, we, I mean, it's which is a huge increase. Um, and then, obviously, we've actually—I don't know if you're aware—we've also seen the UK regulator, the FCA, started investigating people. So they took an investment advisor to court in late April for using WhatsApp for work. Wow, no, I hadn't seen that. Um, and you make a great point there on the, you know, on the government posting that picture. You know, everyone jumped on Zoom for not having the security in place that those sort of details could be leaked. But actually, you know, he didn't think about the security elements of him posting that picture. Spot on. And I, and I do think the work from home posts is now, it's, it's increasing 50,000 a day. So posts with hashtag work from home. Um, slightly slowed. It was fifty to sixty thousand at the beginning of the trend. It's now slowing down to about 40,000 a day, but it's exceeding ten point six million photos on Instagram with the hashtag work from home. So that is a huge amount of data. And obviously there is a lot in there that you can't read, you can't see, but it does also see we're seeing a lot of significant photos with all kinds of information in there employee details, client details, market sensitive information um, that really, as you say, it's the responsibility of the individual posting it because um, there's only so much 
these channels such as Zoom can do to manage the security. Well, yeah, and the value of that to an attacker means they will spend the time to find that information. Absolutely. So one of the things that we notice a lot in security is, you know, it's it's a crowded place. There's a lot of startups and there's a lot of tech and a lot of tools so how are you making sure you stand out um, kind of against all that noise of these other companies Uh, it's a good question so we've got two patents now uh, in the US and so that has really helped I mean we've been investing in our technology for over seven years now with the legal um, understanding and then also the technology build itself Um, when we're speaking to a lot of our clients and also new clients. But I think what what's helping us stand out really is the fact that we can work on corporate devices, but also personal devices. Whilst sort of to date, personal devices have really been considered a no-go for many solutions to work from because of course the privacy requirements. Now it's almost inevitable. There's no way you can expect people from working from home and not using personal devices for some kind of work. And so now it's helping set up the safeguards around those personal devices that meets the GDPR requirement that that maintains the privacy uh, and manages the security issue as well, all in one. And I'm, I'm guessing here, but, you know, obviously you said it started out for the financial services companies um, and they've traditionally invested in BYOD programs. But with companies who maybe were never thinking about working from home, they've had to get their employees on personal devices um, and things like GDPR and the CCPA, they affect all companies, not just FS. So um, have you seen a big uptick from other industries as well? Yeah, um, we are beginning, I mean, our focus is very much on the financial services space, um, but we are beginning to see, yeah, the interest in the pharmaceutical industry as well. And I think over time, most listed organisations, so any company listed on a stock exchange that therefore has um, a requirement to maintain security and manage any form of data leakage. Now, you've mentioned already you know your first startup came when you were you were 16 um, and this isn't your your first one so what have you found um, to be different about this business and this journey in comparison to the other businesses you've set up uh, that's a good question so both the other businesses um, I built without funding so um, we I built we sold we raised revenue just by sales. So this is the first business where raising money has been um, required. And I believe from the research I've been told about and that I've done, um, the we, we did a, obviously all our funding raising was well, primarily pre-2018 in the UK. Um, and whilst... And, complete the commend the government there for the EIS scheme and the R&D that you're able to do with a tech company it is uh, there is um, uh, a challenge um, at times fundraising Um, so I think there have been I mean for 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 any founder it's it's a journey learning to fundraise and telling the story so but it's been an exciting challenge and from every challenge that is a little bit harder to manage and so on you learn the way out and you get through it and you're better for it so it's been it's been really exciting and the 
and having investors behind us who really care about the evolution of the business, where we're going, how these clients are benefiting, benefiting from the solution we're giving them and also our greater um, position for the future of the world and cybersecurity and, and management. It has been, it's been a really wonderful journey and I've, and I've loved that. So that's been an addition that I hadn't envisaged and I've really enjoyed. Now, you've recently moved to California. So do you feel like California is where you need to be as a tech company to sort of really reach um, you know, the, the height of your ambitions? Yeah, so, um, well, I came to California at the end of February for a conference called the RSA, um, called RSA, it's a security conference in San Francisco, and then COVID happened, so I'm still here. Um, so, <laughs> so it wasn't uh, intentional? It was, it was not as, um, it was not as, uh, I think the, there was always a discussion about me moving to the US, but for now it's, um, I wanted to see how the team operated. I wanted to see how it managed work with sales, the time zones, and so on. To date, it's been highly productive, and it works really well with the team. Um, the sales and so on have been it's been much easier because most of our sales are in the US, so it's all worked really nicely. However, um, I'll be testing it out when we're kind of back into some form of more normality. I think we're never going to ever see everyone back in the office again. I don't think that's the case, but. Otherwise, no, I think there's a there's a, a lovely positivity on the West Coast that drives innovation and business entrepreneurs and belief. And also I'm, I can easily get to New York and, and um, D.C. if needed for sales and meeting our clients. So it's it feels good right now, I'll say. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about you, but I love the attitude towards entrepreneurs in the U.S., Absolutely. Yeah, no, I absolutely. I think uh, there's a maybe it's it's a, it's very different um, belief system uh, in the US and people really support those building companies. And hey, if you fail, fail fast and get on with it and move on to the next company. And it's not a, it's not such a it's people will really put their skin in the game to help you move forward. And I think in the UK, it's, a, it's just different. Um, I found the support in the UK was incredible as well. We had some, we have of our early angels in the UK. I couldn't have built this business without. Um, they were significant in our growth. So it is, it's slightly different, but I've enjoyed both journeys. Now, I don't want to get you to be too political, but do you sort of see, um, you know, differences between how the UK and the US support entrepreneurs and sort of any any benefits um, of either? So I can talk at the moment. It's fairly early days in the US. Um, in the UK, uh, I, I think, the yeah, as I mentioned before, the EIS initiative, the SEIS initiative is superb. Um, the tax management for investors wanting to put money into startups. So that really is something that the UK government has got right. And I, and also, obviously, the R&D claims that you can get from uh, for technology. There are a few grants. We haven't... Um, we have just applied for one. In the past, we hadn't. We just went through purely the fundraising route directly. Um, but I'd say, so, I, and I can't compare that with the US 
at the moment. I might be able to in a year. <laughs> so I'll answer you a couple of questions this time. Um, but I think moving forwards, um, uh, we, we're really looking for now um, an individual or um, sort of family office group of individuals who want to be behind one of the future leaders in the cybersecurity space. It's been our investors today are superb and I've enjoyed every moment of that. But I think the opportunity we are now looking at is so clear and um, it is really the growth of this business will be directly related to the amount of uh, salespeople we have and uh, the amount we invest in our product. And, and the product is now superb. The team has worked incredibly hard on making it slick and easy to use. So now it's about selling and uh, letting people benefit from all the hard work that we've been doing. Now, we've mentioned investors and how this is the first business you've taken investment in. Um, you know, I know from my journey and from speaking to others, you know, sometimes people are a bit nervous about taking investment on board. They're nervous for what that means about control or, you know, it may be not why they started the business in the first place. So do you have any advice to offer people um, along those lines? Um, it's a really good question. And I will not, I will not profess to be an all knowing expert ever. (laughs) Um, But from what I'm learning and and what I think communication, I did finding people and, and, and I really our investors have been this finding people that believe you as a founder have got what it takes and are on board with the journey. And I think the most crucial part is knowing that the people will listen because your business will evolve. Your The people you're selling to today will probably evolve to the people you're selling to tomorrow. You'll get feedback on the product. There'll be evolution in regulation. There'll be changes in the marketplace. Something like COVID may happen. You know, all of these situations. And your job as a founder is to be dynamic enough and, and make sure that your business solution is well set to those changes and adapts and, and evolves. And so I would, I'd say rather than be nervous, because I don't think um, fear is always a great server in business, instead use that energy and, and communicate and talk openly with your investors. I think that's probably the hardest thing um you're we're told to be kind of we're taught to be proud of our work and to talk ourselves up and so on and actually what's really important is we're honest you know people know where the business are because then they can help you um so i'd say use the use any energy that gives you concern and use that energy to communicate with people um i have no problem giving away equity to good investors because I know it is in the benefit of Deepview and the team here uh, and our previous investors and our future clients. So I don't think I've never had a problem per se with that specifically. Um, And I really think that sort of the more intelligent, dynamic individuals you've got within the business, the better the business will grow. But it is important that you've got investors that will trust you, will step back when you need to get on and do sales and invest in the product and will respect your decisions 
as a founder, because ultimately um, you don't, you can't speak to investors every week. If you are, you're not selling and that isn't always effective. What you want to be doing is there needs to be a trust there where um, you're able to communicate in an efficient way that works for everyone. I think that's really useful advice. And if you were looking sort of into the future over the next year or two, what do you think we're going to see from the security industry? Wow, big question. Um, I Get the crystal ball out. <laughs> that's spot on. Well, what can we say is definitive that we can then predict the unknowns? Um, I think we are going to see, I mean, as we're seeing commercial real estate being sold off by some of the large organizations, um, and we've seen obviously the Twitter CEO saying people can work from home and so on, we're going to see a significant number of people working from home. I think um, for the benefit of our society, we're actually getting a better work-life balance. I know some days working from home does mean 14-hour days, (laughs) barely leaving your desk. But um, the lack of commuting, you know, the other time-saving times is giving people more time with their family. And so I do believe this is the start of a great shift of people being able to work from home and being more responsible for their own security and management of that security. So with that, solutions that um, enable staff, teams, companies to be secure, that empower individuals to be secure is really the way forward in a simple and effective way. I think in the past, we've kind of seen um, a fairly, some some solutions put in place that maybe were forced on people. I'm, I'm not sure. I think when you've got people in the office, it's easier to manage security requirements and so on that's not the case anymore it's now about motivating and um and getting people to believe in the technology they're using no i think that's uh i think that's a really good summary so we end each podcast with 10 quick fire questions um so just the first thing that comes into your head are you ready I think so. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, no, no, no. I need to say this was the Harvard training. I was born with. <laughs> <laughs> so, what turns you on professionally? Finding a solution where people are grappling with a problem that's been going on for years. What turns you off professionally? Um, where people get bogged down with the problem and yeah, and pulled down and not able to see the way out. How do you unwind? Yoga, running, beach with friends, um, and the occasional film on Netflix. I think you've just described living in California, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and reading books. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> What profession other than your own would you like to try? Oh, gosh, for now, nothing. I'm fully satisfied. <laughs> I think um, maybe you've done enough. <laughs> yeah, no, I think um, I was quite unwell in my early 20s. My thyroid stopped working and I'm now fully fit and kind of I've become, uh, as a friend once, what a friend said, COVID won't come near you because it'll get scared of you. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> very, very kind of my friend. Um, um, but uh, I, I'm fascinated by health and the way that plants and our natural ecosystem can support our well-being. So in the very, very long term future, that might be something I consider. What activity gives you the most energy? Ah, good question. And honestly, I'd say it was dependent on my energy. So some days it'll be running, some days it will be surfing. Um, most importantly, it's learning to listen to my body and figuring out what is the activity at the time I need to do. Some days it will just be, you know, doing a meditation. If you had to present a speech right now, what one word would be its subject? Inspiration. You are at your best when you're doing what? I was going to say working. That makes me sound very boring. So I'll stick with working there. That's what was said. And then maybe, maybe in my off time dancing with friends. <laughs> nice. If today was the last day of your life, what one lesson would you impart? Uh, I think really giving us giving giving ourselves the space love and kindness that we give our friends I think too often and this is certainly applies to myself so it might not apply to everyone else but I think so often we're harder on ourselves than we are necessarily our friends and actually what's most important is that we're kind with ourselves so that we can be kind with our friends and family I think that's a great lesson. And then the last question, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say as the reason he is letting you through the gates? Oh, goodness me. <laughs> um, that's such a, that is, that is one, one interesting question. Um, probably you, you, you made your mark and you helped the people around you in the way that he wished. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For the latest episodes, please subscribe and for future conversations, reach out on Twitter and LinkedIn.